You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. President Donald Trump reacts to yesterday's midterm elections with his customary grace and self-awareness. My guests Michael Goldfarb and Jacob Parakilis will be taking an extended look at what we learned yesterday and what it might tell us about the second half of Trump's first term. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Jacob Parakilis, Deputy Head of the US and America's Program at Chatham House, and Michael Goldfarb, the journalist and broadcaster. Welcome both. And as promised, an extended look tonight at the first US midterm elections that anybody, bar the candidates, unusually punctilious citizens and friendless cranks, has ever cared about. Not for the first or last time, President Donald Trump's energising effect on politics has not had quite the outcome he might have desired. Though Trump has hailed the vote as a big victory, This is a little like hailing Eric Trump as a future Nobel Prize winning physicist, i.e. an act of heroic optimism. Though Trump's Republicans consolidated their grip on the Senate, they did lose the House of Representatives. Um, That press conference from which we played a clip at the top of the show is ongoing. As far as it's possible to tell, Trump has not yet started hurling any actual furniture at the assembled journalists. Uh, It does seem to be only a matter of time. Um, Jacob, does Donald Trump actually have any reason to celebrate? Yeah, I think the the Senate is, uh, I mean, he has a reason to celebrate. It's not an unpredictable reason to celebrate. The Democrats did pretty well in the Senate relative to the number of races that were actually up for election, relative to where those elections were being held, many of them being in states that went for Trump just two years ago. Um, That said, it looks like, depending on the outcome in Montana and Arizona, um, it looks as though uh, Mitch McConnell will be commanding at least 52 and possibly 53 or at a stretch 54 votes, which means that he will have an even freer hand to pass through nominees from Trump, whether those are future cabinet officials, uh, federal judicial appointments, even a potential next Supreme Court justice. Um, so that is a reason to celebrate. And if he's thinking in the longer term, since the 2020 and 2022 cycles don't look quite as uh, rosy for the Republicans, it gives them a little bit more leeway, it means that the Democrats have to work that much harder to take back the Senate and potentially uh, face a second term President Trump with a unified Democratic Congress. But the House is a disaster for him. There's no sugarcoating that. Uh, On which subject, Michael, that is the one thing we do definitely know for sure is that the Republican Party no longer control the House of Representatives. How constrained does that? Well, I mean, obviously it constrains any president, (laughs) but this particular president, how constrained is he likely to be by a Democratic Congress? Congress. Well, it depends. First of all, let, let, let me put a caveat in on any answer here. Um, it depends on if, if the Democrats can get themselves together and do Man, some, that's a big if and do <laughs> and and behave in a you know like they have a backbone. Um, and it's not clear, you know. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House in coming in in theory but she may face a challenge she's 78 she knows more about where everybody's skeletons are hanging and that's very useful um 
But, you know, there has to be a changing of the guard sometimes. Having said that, let me answer your question, Andrew. <laughs> um, the House o o has become the battleground going back 25 years to 1994 uh, when Newt Gingrich and led the Republican charge on the contract with America. Congress, which most people listening to this were probably still in grade school when that happened, but it has more than set the tone for the following um, quarter century. They have accumulated power in the House to do two things that are really important. One is subpoena power. And I can, I can envision a sequence where uh, Robert Mueller, who, who's been... You're not related, are you? Uh, we are not, no. He has been decorously quiet during this election. Because he's a decorous kind of guy. Um, he's a Republican of the old school. Um, Mueller will eventually produce his report. The Democrats... Um, control the House now. They control all the committees. If there's a question about banking, you will see subpoenas about banking. If there's a question about um, Trump's relationship with the Russians, you will see the Foreign Relations Committee subpoenaing him about that. They will tie him up in more paper than Donald Trump's lawyers used to tie up people trying to get paid by Donald Trump back in the days when he was just a real estate developer. And that will be the story, I do believe, of the next 24 months. Um, there is also uh, another thing which has to be considered, which is the Democrats now control the House of Representatives, appropriations bills, the money starts in the House. If he really wants money to finish the wall, he's got to get the Democrats to do it. If he really he wants, wants money, money to start the wall, come to yeah, that. Start the wall. Yeah. <laughs> if, if he really wants money to bail out all those farmers who voted for him and have now been screwed 15 ways from Sunday because soybean prices have collapsed, and the New York Times had a brilliant article 48 hours ago about these mountains of soybeans in North Dakota that cannot be sold because of Trump's idiot tariff policy with China. See, th this, is where they, I, this is where I feel I should do the omniscient narrative voice and say, but Trump didn't care. But Trump didn't care, and they voted for him, and they'd vote for him again tomorrow. And, I and so when Trump says, oh, I need $2 billion to bail these guys out who are my voters, I certainly hope that the House Appropriations Committee says, stick it where the sun don't shine, sunshine. Uh, can I, or can fake I, sunshine. Can I just come in on the, the first point there, on the, the question of investigations? Because I don't disagree, but it actually, I'd modulate it somewhat because it's not just the Mueller investigation. It's also, I mean, this is a, a target-rich environment. You have 14 separate investigations into Ryan Zinke, the interior secretary. You have ongoing questions about the departed HHS secretary, Tom Price, and his use of private jets. You have ongoing questions about the use of public funds by uh, Scott Pruitt, the former EPA administrator. You have Jared Kushner's security clearance. You have uh, the secretary of commerce, Wilbur Ross, and his uh, belated declarations of conflict of interest. And, you know, and that's just off the top of my head. There are probably things in departments that have attracted no media attention whatsoever, housing and urban development, energy, that have not been examined at all by either the press or by the relevant oversight committee. Jeez, we, should, we should both fly back to Washington and see if we can get jobs as Hill staffers. They obviously have to ramp up their staffing. There, there will be a lot of call for investigators. But, but you, you know what's interesting, Jacob, is that the, the this is obviously, and it's not an exaggeration, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion, this is the most corrupt um, 
government since Warren G. Harding's administration, the Teapot Dome scandal. And you may, if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me, Warren G. Harding's head exploded about three years into his term, and he had a massive stroke, and he died, didn't he? Or did he? I don't think, think without looking it up, I don't think Harding died in office. No. Harding did die in office in 1923. Yes, he he did. And that was why Teapot Dome didn't end up. Those those points go to Jacob. Well, no, I'm saying, I'm I'm asking (laughs) Jacob to verify, because he's young, and his memory isn't anywhere near as cluttered as mine. And, and, you know, this is is my most optimistic point. The day he was elected... I and I'm doubling down on the air, Monocle listeners. I said he wouldn't. He would make it. He wouldn't last two years. I'm having to reconsider. And one of the reasons that I didn't think he'd make it two years was a Mueller would get him, or b his health would fail. And having watched the performance just now, on uh, of this bizarre press conference, if he were to do a Warren Harding, and have some kind of massive stroke, would anyone be surprised? I think it's a little bit I, – I'd personally rather not get into speculation about the president's health. Obviously, there are real questions there given the uh, – his his previous medical care and the persona of his former personal doctor. Um, <laughs> this but, was – but th- that was the personal doctor who said that Trump was the healthiest person who'd ever run for the presidency in a letter then, that the doctor certainly wrote himself and wasn't dictated by Trump. And then recanted and now claims that his, his records relating to Trump were confiscated by people working for Trump. Nevertheless, I don't think it's – I don't think it's particularly helpful to speculate about the president's health, even though it is a legitimate uh, interest of the national the, the national body politic. But I do think there is something very real about the effectiveness of an administration, which is going to be besieged on all sides, not just on questions of potential Russian collusion, but cabinet members, the president's family, the president's business interests, the president's uh, aides. Who's going to want to – the president's going to want a clean house. He's going to want to get rid of some of his uh, his cabinet members. But who's going to want to go in under these conditions? Well, we might come up with a partial answer to that as we move on a little bit because the American political cycle being what it is, today has been pretty much the first day of campaigning for the 2020 election at which one of the officers up for grabs will be the Oval One. We are still a way off the point at which challenges for the presidency formally make themselves known, but Democratic Party Party strategists will already be scrabbling through the runes scattered by yesterday's vote in search of, if not the actual candidate for the presidency in 2020, then some idea of what that candidate might look like. Uh, Jacob, as a representative of that younger generation, um, did you see anything, especially in the new faces, of which there were many uh, elected yesterday, some of them very far from being insignificant? We have now the two youngest women ever to serve in Congress, the first two Muslim women, the first two Native American women, uh, the first gay governor has been elected in Colorado. Um, Is there somewhere in there, if not any of those actual people who will probably still be a bit young for this two years from now, in fact, a couple of them constitutionally literally too young for this two years from now, but is there some idea of the future of the Democratic Party? So there's a lot of speculation about uh, Beto O'Rourke, who very narrowly lost the Texas Senate race, who is a member of the House of Representatives of three terms, I think. So he wouldn't be the least experienced person ever to run for the presidency. He did energize the voters. Is Is it tough to come off a loss, though, to run for president? Lincoln did it. I mean, that was a long time ago, but the, um, I mean, it's, it's, he can very 
incredibly spin the idea that he made Texas more competitive. He brought uh, victory to down-ballot races, to uh, Texas Democrats running in the House. He contributed to the the wave in the House. Um, And I think he has a pretty substantial supply of goodwill from both the more establishment and the more progressive wings of the party. So I wouldn't rule him out. I wouldn't necessarily rule him in either. Um, I think... The, the person who stands out to me, I mean, I, you know, I, my view of it fundamentally hasn't changed. I still think, you know, some combination of Booker, Harris, Gillibrand, um, possibly Warren, although I would say she, her chances have diminished in the last few weeks, um, are probably likely to be in contention for it. Um, but Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, uh, a state which is vaguely, you know, quite Democratic, but not overwhelmingly so, held Democratic in 2016 when next door Wisconsin and next next door Michigan did not, but only by a fairly thin margin. Um, she won her re-election overwhelmingly. She got huge votes in, in rural counties. She's relatively progressive. Um, there's a lot of speculation that I've been able to pick up today as uh, on, on her as a potential candidate. She's been relatively quiet, but I wouldn't be surprised if she's uh, today reconsidering her her. Uh, potential candidacy. Uh, Michael, we were talking earlier in the show about the uh, opportunities the Democrats are going to have to to gum Trump's administration up with inquiries and subpoenas and investigations. But what should be the Democratic Party's actual priority from now to 2020? Do they need to be thinking in terms of taking down Donald Trump or presenting a positive case for the Democratic Party? Can they hope to show up in 2020 and win by basically just not being Donald Trump? Well, this is... uh, was the subject of a documentary I did um, that I was reporting in October, and they they face a they face a real dilemma here. Um, so I, I, my my basic view is they need to part. They, those two points are not they're not dissimilar because the base wants them to to really hold not just Donald Trump's feet to the fire, but the entire Republican Party. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting, and I was in Georgia and Texas um, for quite a bit of time, and, and two of the races I, w- I was paying attention to and candidates I met, um, they're still counting the votes. I mean, the votes have essentially been counted. 100% of the votes cast yesterday have been counted, but now they have to open up all the postal ballots and so on. Um, here's what, what I learned is that the energy in the party is incredibly progressive and it's it's mostly it's not just the young it's brought the young out and that's good but bernie sanders had started doing that two years ago what's important is that they sustain the leadership of the party sustains the idea that now that we've got this far we're not just going to go back to business as usual in the house of representatives which is why i commented earlier about why nancy pelosi will face some kind of challenge about becoming Speaker of the House. She probably will win because she's actually good at at moving things around the legislature, but we'll see what happens. I think that the Democrats' dilemma is how you can be both on the attack against Donald Trump and the Republican Party, which he has put in his back pocket, and how you can be putting your own agenda forward. But these candidates... Lucy McBath, Gina Ortiz-Jones, remember these names, because even if they lose, they will be 
figures in the party. They managed to talk about health care. They managed to talk about all those middle class, and I hate that term because what does middle class mean anymore? Um, all those middle class concerns, uh, you know, the social safety net has been shredded. People voted for Donald Trump. They voted for Donald Trump because they really hated Hillary Clinton. If there'd been a better candidate in 2016, perhaps Donald Trump would just be a joke uh, for late-night comedians. So I think that the Democrats really do have to keep double focus. You have to keep pushing really hard because the base wants punishment. There's no doubt about that. But the base also wants to talk about real policies. And I think they can do it. I don't think it's an impossible dilemma. And a final thought, because Jacob wants to jump in, is the best thing, the most important, one of the most important things I heard on that trip is a guy named Richard Parker, who was the founding editor of Mother Jones magazine, what, 50 years ago, and now teaches at the Kennedy School. And he said, look, the biggest thing they have to do is find someone who's authentic. Beto O'Rourke, burst through because he was authentic. Kamala Harris in the Kavanaugh hearings burst through into consciousness because they're authentic. That's what they need to find. The one thing I'd add to that, none of which I disagree with, is that I think there might be some value in the Democrats having the House but not the Senate strategically because the people doing the investigating are Elijah Cummings, Adam Schiff, um, these, these longstanding committee chair people and committee ranking members, none of whom, with the possible exception of Schiff, um, seem to have particular near-term presidential ambitions. And someone like Cummings, who's in his late 60s, probably doesn't have presidential ambitions at all. They want to be a committee chairperson, do the job of a committee chairperson, maybe run for Senate at some point, and that sort of thing. So there's kind of a, a natural separation between the party's rising stars in the Senate, the Bookers and Harrises and Gillibrands and um, Klobuchar's, and Beto, Beto O'Rourke, who's sort of doing his own thing a little bit, and then these these investigators. Um, so you can have, on the one hand, the, the holding the feet to the fire, and on the other hand, the advancing of a positive agenda. Now, that assumes a certain degree of sophistication in the electorate and being able to disaggregate those two. But I've actually, I actually think if you look at the, the results and the, the sort of nuances in the results, there is a fair degree of sophistication in the electorate, and, and you probably shouldn't underestimate that. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Jacob Parakilis and Michael Goldfarb. Coming up, ne up next, indeed, the midterms in Florida, the and finally state. See that man sitting opposite you on the subway, lost in another world? Or that smart woman scribbling notes while having her flat white? Well, here's what links them. They're both listening to Monocle 24 via our free radio app that simply and seamlessly lets you tune in live or download shows for later enjoyment. Just think, you too could be settling back enjoying cultural nourishment in the form of the Monocle Arts Review, being briefed on the world of business with the entrepreneurs, or just enjoying great music with the sessions at Midori House. Come on, download the Monocle 24 app today. Stick on your headphones and have informed fun on the go. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world.
You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Michael Goldfarb and Jacob Parakilis. Now, veteran contemplators of American politics are long resigned to the caprices of Florida, a state which has made a specialty of staging excruciatingly close races, which often have an infuriatingly wider significance. Yesterday was no exception. The Senate race between incumbent Democrat Bill Nelson and Republican challenger Rick Scott appears to have been settled in favour of the latter by fewer voters than might have been distracted en route to the polls by a fight with an alligator. The gubernatorial scrap between Republican Ron DeSantis and Democrat Andrew Gillum also went the GOP's way by a tiny, tiny margin. But Floridians voted enthusiastically to restore voting rights to convicted felons who have served their sentence. Um, Jacob, rising above the obvious jokes uh, about Floridians, which I am, as an Australian, probably entitled to make, um, nearly 10% of Florida's voting population are, or rather were, affected by this. So how big a deal could this be for future elections? Unbelievably massive. So this is 1.4 million people in a state where, I mean, I'm, I'm... Old enough to remember 2000 and the presidential election decided in Florida by 571 votes and the hanging chads. Um, and that's not uncommon. Every national election, in, virtually every national election in Florida since then has been decided by a margin measured in no more than five figures. Um, there are a couple that were a broader range than that, but generally speaking, Florida is a very closely divided state. And the uh, this community of ex-felons who are going to be re-enfranchised is uh, disproportionately African-American Hispanic. Those are disproportionately Democratic voting groups. So if I was a Democratic strategist taking the long view, I would say – Yes, bad that we lost the Democratic, uh, we lost the governor's race, bad that we lost the Senate race, but the much bigger deal is re-enfranchisement. Well, in, in 2004, I made a, an hour-long program called The Mind of the South because the Confederate mindset still frames far too much of, of America. It's the agenda center, agenda center and far too much of American politics. And I was in Tallahassee and... I went to uh, had an interview with one of Al Gore's team of lawyers locally, and he told me that you know he had he had urged Gore to just demand a total statewide recount. Don't don't concede. You won, and then they put me in touch with a guy. I think his first name was Andrew, but his surname was Johnson. He was an African-American. Um, and I went down to his church to meet him. He's a deacon of his church, sang in the choir. He had gone to vote in 2000 and been turned away. Why? Because his surname is Johnson, which is an extraordinarily common name amongst African-Americans. And somebody said, well, you're a felon. He said, That's it's not me. It's another Andrew Johnson who may have been in prison. <laughs> what, what are the odds? What are the, yeah, John Johnson, James Johnson. You know, and and this was in a state that was decided by you know three figures, a couple of hundred votes. If you think of and he wasn't even a felon. If you think of the thousands of people who are disenfranchised just because they have the same surname as a felon, I think that this will so it, it make a be, huge difference. It might be actually more than 1.4 million. Even. Well, it, I mean, I'd, yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's a very effective tool of voter suppression in the African-American community. You know, if you have... You know, certain surnames, it's this common, you know, my last name is Goldfarb. I don't think anyone doubts, you know, what my ethnic background is. And if your surname is Johnson in, in parts of, of America, there's not a lot of doubt. And this is a really, and it's pastime anyway, 
not even with voter suppression. You pay your debt to society. When I heard that this was the law in Florida. And in many other states you know, besides, uh, you know, in fact, there's still you know, a dozen or so states that once you commit a felony, you're, you're off you're for done. life. You pay your debt to society and you should be able to be a citizen again. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, we'll take a look at how these midterms affect the rest of the world, which possibly for the first time has paid any attention to the midterms. One nervous prognostication is that if President Trump finds himself stymied at home by a hostile House of Representatives, he may seek to express himself, let's call it that, abroad, where any president does enjoy considerable, if not formidable, executive powers. Um, Jacob, is that, is that a reasonable fear, do you think? I think it's a reasonable expectation. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. So I think there, there's a scenario where Trump is more inspired to do risk, to take risks, to do things which are potentially very dangerous. But actually, I, I think that it's possible that the things that he will do by way of uh, demonstrating his continued power and relevance, even when his domestic agenda is blocked and his administration is being tied up in subpoenas, um, are not necessarily things which will increase at least short-term risks. If you look at his big summit with Kim Jong-un, for example, um, which... If, when you dr drill down into it in terms of did it succeed in denuclearizing North Korea, did it succeed in lessening long-term dangers on the Korean Peninsula? No, obviously. But the temperature of the sort of war rhetoric from Washington in particular, but concurrently from uh, Pyongyang, was dialed down significantly by Trump's apparently sincere belief that he had convinced Kim Jong-un to denuclearize. So I think there's a, there is a version of this where Trump seeks to uh, make deals. He doesn't particularly pay attention to what those deals are. And Again, in the long term, they may increase risk, but in the short term, you know, if it, it averts a war with Iran, that's probably a good thing. I, I'm not entirely sure I agree with you, Jacob. We've got almost all the way through the show, and we've agreed on everything. <laughs> You've only competed for who gets to talk. Um, I... What I worry about is, is I, I, I notice from afar a dynamic in the White House that he is so easily distracted and basically bored that people within the, the inner circle can make policy on the hoof. And you have, working as a national security advisor, John Bolton, who's an extraordinarily dangerous fella. And I, my worry would be that while Trump is fuming about Jim Acosta at CNN and, and you know, the, 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 the subpoenas to see his tax records finally, because you know the House is going to want to see those. Um, he has addressed that at the press conference. He says he hasn't released his tax returns because they're too complicated and people wouldn't understand them. Oh, yeah, they're, because they're in Russian. Um, <laughs> look, the, my, my worry is that... Um, there would be freelancing going on. There are persistent reports that Jim Mattis, who's, who's the Secretary of Defense and seems to be one of the few vaguely sane people in the cabinet, might be canned or just finally have had enough now. Um, you know, and without Mattis to kind of confront you know, a chicken hawk like John Bolton and say, you know, dude, we're not going to have a nuclear throwdown with Iran. You could find pressures put in place. And John Bolton is like Dick Cheney. I mean, he's a, a protege of Dick Cheney. He knows how to work the system. And so you have an absent-minded president, and one day he, he wakes up and there's a crisis that requ may require a military solution. That does have me worried, I have to say. I think that's a reasonable 
a reasonable supposition. I guess my point is more that I don't think Trump will intentionally create a war to distract. I think that's probably beyond him. I don't think he want. I think he is aware that that would almost certainly blow back against him. Um, I think there's a real danger of miscalculation. I mean, one of the, the big dangers of the Trump administration has been that you don't have a coherent messaging. You have Mattis saying the red line is here and Pompeo saying it's, well, maybe 75% of where it is for Mattis and then Trump, you know, off in the other direction entirely. And there's a certain degree of madman theory where nobody really wants to test the U.S. because they don't really know where the line is. But as people get inured to this and you you begin to see risk-taking behavior such as what Saudi Arabia has done, not really necessarily punished, then risks are taken more by external actors and the U.S. may find itself in a crisis without the capacity to sort of strategically and coherently manage it. Um, I guess I just don't think that Trump is, as I say, likely to in response to domestic pressures, actually start a war. I don't think that that's... Yeah, a, I agree with that. Just, just, just finally, Michael, in, in, in about 30 seconds or so, what really now should we expect from the next two years of Trump's administration? Will it be more of the same? Yeah, I think it'll, it'll be much more of the same. And as the legal pressure piles on him, I think there'll be more public unraveling and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I've always said that it's a transactional relationship with the Republican party. They've got Mike Pence sitting there as vice president. It's entirely possible that they just might urge him to, you know, go play golf on a permanent basis. Anything is possible. What is absolutely certain is it'll be a ratings hit. Uh, That does bring us to the end of today's show. Michael Goldfarb and Jacob Parakilis, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delasanti. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200 with Paul Osborne. Uh, Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.